0: Amen. The Lord bless you as you give. We're finishing up a series today called the Book of Action, which is based on, of course, the Book of Acts in the Bible's New Testament. This is an amazing book. I love the Book of Acts. I've read the Book of Acts so many times because it reads like just a straight, straight narrative. You don't have to be a sort of theological genius to figure out what's going on. It's story after story about what God is doing in people's lives in the early, uh, the early community of faith, the early church. In part one, we talked about the basic question, what does it mean to be saved? Then we talked about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. What, what is this? What is this experience that we see in the book of Acts? Last week, we talked about where are the miracles, and today, we're going to talk about the second coming. There was a question that came to me uh, from somebody in our church on the subject of miracles that I thought was very, very important and very insightful. Um, we, we, we talked about how miracles do not happen every day and we we often hear the the line oh miracles happen every day miracles happen every day uh, i would contend that when you read the scripture they do not happen every day and they do not happen every day even when you read the book of acts uh, a miracle by definition in the scripture is a, is a dramatic sign a wonder uh, to authenticate the message of jesus and of christianity uh, it's done often for that very purpose. A miracle isn't a magic trick uh, where Jesus is somehow showing off his power and how great he is and, you know, just to do something uh, in in that realm. It's to benefit somebody else. Um, It's to demonstrate the authenticity of the message of salvation, and it's a sign. It's a wonder. Sometimes this word is used, um, and it's something that's above the usual operation, you know, of nature. So we had an image on the screen of a plant growing, okay, a plant growing, well, that's a wonderful system, that's not a miracle. Uh, uh, But a, a dead person rising, well, that's a miracle, okay? We try to distinguish between that. But what's the difference, the question came, what's the difference between a miracle and God just working in someone's life? Isn't that miraculous? And that's a very good question. Because one could argue, rightfully, that God works in our lives all the time. All day long, God is working in our lives. Is that not miraculous? Uh, So I think the best way to to answer the question is, uh, you want to talk about the miraculous versus providence. And uh, God's providence and God's sovereign will is always on display in our lives. Sometimes whether we know it or whether we don't know it. And that's a little bit different than a miracle, a sign, or a wonder. Let me give you an example uh, from my own personal life. When I was working in the, in the marketplace a number of years ago, I remember I was praying in the morning before I went to work, and there was a guy uh, at the workplace who I was sharing my faith with, and, and uh, God... I felt that God kind of dropped something into my mind while I was praying. It was a bit of an impression. Uh, I've never heard an audible voice. Some people talk about an audible voice. I think the only audible voice I've ever heard from God is him laughing at me. Uh, I'll tell you that story another time. But anyway, this this impression came into my mind that I needed to talk to this guy, and I needed to ask him uh, to read a certain book. Uh, by an author by the name of John Maxwell, who's a Christian uh, leadership teacher, really. And so I went to to work that day and kind of tucked that thing in my mind as, well, maybe it's of God, maybe it's of me, who knows, whatever. And so I went to work, and we were talking, and I said to him in the course of the conversation, I said, you ought to read this book by John Maxwell. And his face went blank like this, almost changed color. And he said, why did you say that? Have you been looking in my bag?" I said, "No." He said, "That's impossible. You must have looked into my bag because I have that very book in my bag. I went and bought that book and I have not read that book yet." I said, "Well, maybe it's God talking to you." You know, and I smiled at him and I said, "You should read that book." And I'm telling you, from that day forward, the way that he interacted with me was different because he was shocked at the coincidence there. Okay, that's, that's the moving of God in providence. I'm not so sure I would call that a sign or a wonder or a miracle. Do you see the difference? And God coordinates these things all the time. He's doing that in our lives on a daily basis where you look and you look back and you say, the string of timing, the string of coincidences is too high. It's God doing something. It's God dovetailing something in my life that this is the work of God. That happens constantly. Uh, but miracles and signs and wonders, these are dramatic, sometimes one-time happenings. You may only see one bona fide Bible miracle in your life. I've seen I would say three, as I talked about last week, and two real instances of you know, demonic possession and that kind of stuff. But that's, that's a lot of time that I've only seen those kinds of things, all right? So just to distinguish between the providence of God and the miraculous, are you with me on that? Okay, I thought it was a terrific question that was worth, worth bringing into the intro today. I want to talk to you about the second coming of Jesus today as we conclude this this look at the book of Acts. This is is preached about less and less in Christian circles, uh, the second coming of Jesus. This used to be in early Pentecostalism, almost every message was was about the second coming. It used to be that if a church met in a movie theater, this was regarded. If a Christian went to a movie theater, this was regarded as, you know, a very high on the sin list. Because if the rapture of the church, and in in Pentecostal theology, the idea is that Jesus will remove the church from the world before a period of wrath takes place. And so the idea in early Pentecostalism was if the rapture were to happen and a Christian we're in a place like a movie theater, they would miss the rapture. So, if the rapture were to happen now, we may all be in serious trouble. Maybe I've led you astray and brought you into a movie theater. Well, our theology has advanced a little bit probably since the early 1900s, and now we seem to understand a little bit more that the church is about people rather than a place. Uh, But the idea of the second coming, the idea of the return of Jesus was certainly uh, at the forefront of people's minds a hundred years ago. And 2,000 years ago, when we read the book of Acts, it was at a fever pitch. The people in the book of Acts thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. It is obvious that they thought this. This is the way that they wrote. In fact, the whole New Testament The way that the New Testament is written, the way that Paul writes, the way that Peter writes, the way that that the author of Hebrews writes, the book of Revelation, all of these things, the people thought that the return of Jesus was near, Uh, and yet now we're 2,000 years later. Uh, We're in a a movie theater context, and and usually what sells in terms of movies, and I was talking to the manager uh, for some time before the morning started today, is sequels. People love to watch these sequels, and those are really, really popular at the box office. Has it occurred to you that the return of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, it's like a sequel? The, The story is not over yet, and the story cannot be over. And I would argue that if we are not sensitive, if we are not um, cognizant of the return of Jesus in the way that we think, in the way that we operate as Christians, we have missed a huge, huge element of life and a huge touch point to share our faith with non-Christian people. And I'm going to break that down for you Uh, this morning. This is a major theme, the return of Jesus in the book of Acts. It's a major theme there. So Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus is leaving, as it were. These are his last words to his disciples before he literally goes up into the sky. And in verse 11, men of Galilee, these angelic beings said to the, the disciples there, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So they're telling the disciples he's going to come back. There's going to be a part two. There's going to be a sequel, and he will return visibly the same way that you've seen him go is the way that he's going to come back. And if you look at the chapter, you will see that they start the conversation by asking Jesus, is this the end? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? Are you going to overthrow the Romans now? And he says, you-, you-, you don't know what you're asking in a sense. He says, it's not for you to know the times or the dates that the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And he diverts them away from that and gets them to understand what they need to do on planet earth. But the promise of the return of Jesus is still very, very real. Are we recording? We're on? Okay, perfect. Um, Acts chapter 2. I didn't, I didn't bring mine, or I did bring mine. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it on just in case. There we go. Um, Acts chapter 2, and we talked about this as well. This is Peter. Uh, in, his, in his, his sermon to the people after all this strange stuff is happening, and you have these people speaking in these languages that they don't understand. What does he say? He quotes from the, the, the Old Testament prophet Joel. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants. Both men and women, I will pour out my spirit. So what's he saying? These are the last days, Peter is saying to the people. The time has now come. I'm going to show you wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. And verse 20, the sun will be darkened. Uh, uh, The moon will be turned to blood before The great day, the great and glorious day of the Lord. This idea that the Messiah would return again and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It was foundational to their preaching that there would be a part two. Uh, Acts chapter 3, Peter talking to the crowd after this man is publicly healed at the temple gate. Uh, We talked about this last week. He's explaining to them what's going on and why the person was healed. And he says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord and and that he may send the Messiah or the Christ. Who has been appointed to you, even Jesus? Verse 21 Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything. There will be a part two, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, here's how it gets important for you and me, and for the culture at large. The biggest challenge. The biggest question that people have about the Christian faith, and probably you have asked this question as well, uh, those of us who profess to be followers of Christ in this room, why, if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-loving, and if God is holy, and if God is just, then how is it that God does not put a stop to the things that we see happening in this world. This is the biggest question and the biggest challenge to Christianity. It always has been and it always will be. How can we reconcile the power of God, which we're taught is limitless, and the holiness of God and the love of God with what we see happening on a day-to-day basis in this world? And people say, how can that be? How can your God allow this stuff to happen. How can it be? This week, I was having a conversation with a a non-church person, and he said to me, he brought up the news story that's rocked the Roman Catholic Church. Once again, you have a very uh, high-ranking priest, I believe, in Australia, who is now, there are allegations of sexual abuse and all of this. This guy is like one of the top guys in the the Catholic Church worldwide, if I may put it that way. And this man came to me, and he brought the subject up, and he's talking to me he said, don't talk to me about your God. Don't talk to me about religion. Religion did this. This is why this man behaved this way, because of religion. And that opened a door for me to talk to him about the difference between religion and and grace. And it was a helpful conversation. But people ask the question all the time. Why is God allowing this? And the answer, the only answer to the question, when you really boil it down, is that there will be a part two, is that Jesus will return. The second coming will put an end to evil and will show us the justice and the holiness of God. If you do not have the second coming, then we have an objection to Christianity that's extremely valid. There is no answer to the question, save the second coming. I remember many, many years ago, a non-Christian uh, uh, person who I was uh, dealing with, uh, he, he was trying to sell me something, and he found out I was a pastor, and he said in front of his whole business, he ran a little business, a computer business, and he said to me, you're a pastor, you're a man of the cloth. If any of you men of the cloth, I don't care if you're a pastor a priest, an imam, a witch Whatever you are, if you can answer me that question, if God is all-powerful and God is just and God is holy, why does he allow this evil to happen in the world? Answer me the question now, he said, and I will become a follower of your God. And I looked at him and I said, why don't we have lunch? (laughs) That was one of the wiser decisions I probably made. I said, why don't we have lunch? And so we had lunch and I told him, uh, what I'm going to tell you today it is foundational question that that must be answered. And we see this in the book of Acts, uh, Acts chapter 10, verse 42. We talked about this last week, the, the conversion of Cornelius and his household, uh, this, this Gentile, or last week or the week before, I forget. And when Peter meets up with this man finally, and he's in front of him, and the man says, God wants you to tell us some message, tell it to us. And he's he's preaching to Cornelius and his household, and he says, he commanded us to preach that he is Gentile. Jesus to the people and testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead there is a part two that will come. Acts chapter 17, Paul is in front of the the non-Christian people in Athens, and he's explaining the gospel message to them. He says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, speaking of idolatry, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice. By the man he has appointed, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. It was foundational in their preaching and justice and judgment and resurrection of all people to face judgment was part of their understanding of part two. It was part of their understanding of the second coming. Paul, in front of Governor Felix, again, another non-Christian person, Acts 24. However, I admit, he says to the governor, that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There will be a part two. It was foundational to their preaching and it was tied to the judgment to come. Verse 25, as Paul talked about righteousness, self-control and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. (laughs) You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. The second coming is a reality that we have to be cognizant of again. And it will happen, as I said to this man who challenged me years ago, it will happen in time. In time. And I'm going to give you an acronym on the word time, T-I-M-E. This is from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. Peter uh, would would the things that he would say in Acts, he would write about. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, he writes this second letter to this group of Christians that are scattered in various provinces. And he says, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past. By the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through our apostles. Here we go. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffing and following their own evil desires, they will say, Where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on. Same old broken record since it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget, Peter says, that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water and by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed, referring to, yes, the great flood of Noah from the book of Genesis. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness and said, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But that day, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. He says the heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. The second coming will happen in time. T-I-M-E, the letter T. The second coming is T, true, verses 4 to 6. They will say, where is the coming he promised? Everything goes on. It's the same old story. Life goes on and on. And he reminds them, Peter does, of, of all things The flood of Noah, uh, which today is one of the most challenged uh, parts of the Bible, this idea of a global flood. But what is Peter saying? He's saying they forget about the past, these people who deny the second coming. And the day of judgment to come, they forget about the past, but they need to remember the past, he says, because God did it one time before and he's going to do it again. What's he saying? The the facts of history, by his argument, guarantees the future, and he cites the world wide flood of all things now lest we we scoff and mock at this idea uh, I want to put a picture on the screen for you you need to watch this this video uh, most of you probably have Netflix and this is on Netflix you watch it for free or whatever you pay nine bucks a month this is a tremendous I have watched this I was so impressed at the argument laid out for a global deluge a global flood The power of water, friends, is not to be trifled with. And when you talk about the idea of a global flood, as per the book of Genesis, where it talks about the subterranean waters exploding forward and the rain coming down on one day and the whole earth being deluged, wow, that's a lot of water. And this will, of anything, it will show you the two competing views of course, the idea of the evolutionary model, but also the idea of this catastrophe that really produced the fossil record that we see today. I would challenge you to watch it. It's, it's kind of technical, so you want a cup of tea or maybe something to you know, keep your brain going, but I was so impressed uh, with that video. By Peter's argument, he's saying to them, these people forget about the past and therefore they're ignorant of the future. He cites the worldwide flood. He implies the resurrection of Jesus because how can Jesus return if he's still dead? But the resurrection of Jesus, if we look at the early preaching of the apostles, this again is cited as evidence that Jesus will return, in particular by Paul. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. This is what Paul says. Uh, we do not want you to be uninformed or ignorant, about those who sleep in death. Uh, And we don't want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise. And, and after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together, a supernatural event, with them in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The crux of his argument for this is that we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that he's going to come back. This is his argument, Uh, the destruction of the temple. Jesus himself would use this argument. Uh, One of his final messages in in Mark chapter 13, I'll take it from there. The the people are looking at the temple and the buildings of the temple, magnificent structure enlarged by Herod the Great. And they look and they say, look at all these buildings, Jesus. And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? In verse 2, Mark 13, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Do you know what a crazy statement that would have been for someone in the first century to look at all the buildings of the temple and the temple itself and to declare that the thing would be destroyed? It would be akin to predicting something like the end of the world. I mean, the people would have been in shock by that statement of Jesus. This thing had just been enlarged by by Herod the Great, as I said. I mean, it was a magnificent structure. And here you have Jesus saying, it's all going to be torn down. And so they asked Jesus, when will this happen? and what will be the sign of the of the coming of the end of the age and jesus takes them way beyond their question and he takes them into this idea even of his own second coming and in verse 26 speaking of a totally distant time at that time we will uh, uh, at that time people will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory, speaking of part two, speaking of his second coming. But what does he do? He draws a parallel to that and the destruction of the temple and the buildings of the temple. Now, 40 years after Jesus made that statement, the Romans came in and they sacked and burned Jerusalem. It would have looked like a holocaust to the people. It would have looked like the end of the world was happening. And they destroyed the temple. It has never since been rebuilt. You have one retaining wall left of the old city called the wailing wall that is left is very very significant site that people go to pray at in jerusalem the temple is gone completely gone been destroyed (laughs) for jesus to have said that would have been an utterly shocking statement but what's he doing he's saying it happened once it's going to happen again there's going to be a part two we need to remember the past in order to not be ignorant of the future. Number two, the second coming is I imminent. It is imminent. It will happen without a warning. The words of Peter from verse 10 of 2 Peter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Have any of you ever been robbed before? Did you, did you, could you predict the time when the thief would come? Well, of course not. That's why he's a thief. I remember when we were robbed. We've only been robbed once, I think. I think one time, uh, maybe more than well, one time, where where it was at our house. I've been on the mission field where they've been robbed, but uh, at our house, I remember one time it happened to be on the Jewish, the highest highest day of the Jewish calendar. Believe it or not, it was on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur in the, I think it was 2006, you know that those of you who work with Jewish people, you know that the story of Yom Kippur is that's when God decides your fate for the rest of the year. Whether you'll be rich or you'll be poor, whether you'll live or you'll die, you'll be sick or you'll be well, he seals it on Yom Kippur. That's why they all go to temple. Can I just tell you the best time for you to ask your Jewish boss for a raise is around that time. Because they got to do good things in order to get God's attention. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not jesting. Like that's. Uh, those of you who work with Jewish people, you know that to be true. Anyway, Yom Kippur, we come home on a Sunday afternoon. We look in the in the door, and in the front door, there's this little wood chip inside the lock, in the keyhole. So I push the door open. The door is unlocked. So I turn around. My wife's still outside. I say, oh, oh, I think we've been robbed. <laughs> So I go upstairs, go and look around, see if the thief is still there. I happen to have a little saw in the, in the entry to the house, so I picked up the saw. So I figure if the, if the thief is still there, he's going to run into my saw. What a foolish thing. Anyway, so I look, of course, we've been robbed. But you know that sense of violation, right, when your house is robbed? And it's like, man, I wish I'd have been there when that thief was there. This is the image that Peter gives it's going to happen at a time when people do not expect it, cannot predict it. It will come. It's an imminent event. His, it, the idea in his preaching is that we need to be prepared for it because it could happen at any time. It happens without warning, like a thief in the night. Uh, M, it will be a mighty event, a, a magnificent event, if you will. It will be a global, um, earth-changing event. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 24, as lightning in the the east is visible in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's not an invisible event where Jesus returns, you know, to the headquarters of the Jehovah's Witnesses in Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) It's a global, earth-changing, life-changing, world-changing event. Verse 10, the heavens will disappear with a roar. That's powerful language. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Wow. That is the language of judgment. That is a mighty thing. That is not a, a little minor isolated incident for only some people to experience. It is a huge um, a, a catastrophic event that is going to happen, uh, if I can use that word, at the second coming of the Lord. And E, it will eliminate evil. And that's where it's relevant to this question about God's nature. The purpose of the second coming, in a very real sense, is to vindicate the character and the nature of God. Because God must deal with evil. He must deal with it. He can't just say, well, I'll just let it run on and on and on and on. Because if God lets it run on, then God is not holy. We cannot accurately say that God is holy if he does not ultimately deal with evil. He must. He is obligated to deal with evil. His character and his nature compels him to deal with evil and to deal with evil in a just fashion. There is a necessity for the judgment of God to come. Verse 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Wow, I mean, that is powerful language, frightening language, but this is a very real part of what is to come. And we can't just relegate that off to the side, well, it's just for the theologians to worry about. No, it's a very relevant problem, and it's very important that we acknowledge that. Look at the world around you. And it's not getting better, it's getting worse. We literally live in a time now where, as I said last week, anywhere we go, there could be an attack of some sort. There could be an explosion. There could be a terrorist incident. We literally live in that fear now. And that's not going to get better and better, friends. That's going to get worse and worse and worse. And there needs to be, if God is real and God is who he says he is, and the scripture is accurate in describing who God is, there needs to be an ultimate vindication and an ultimate judgment against evil. Otherwise, we have an objection that cannot be answered. Otherwise, we have a God that we cannot trust, who we cannot trust, who maybe doesn't really love us, who maybe this is all a sham. There must be an answer. Since everything, verse 11, will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat powerful language. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness. Revelation talks about a new order where there'll be no more death or sorrow or tears or dying for the old has gone and the new has come. And God has to wrap up the story. God has to finish it. There must be a part two. Question is, when will it happen? Well, if you again, if you read the New Testament from cover to cover, even just the book of Acts, you're going to see that this is something that was definitely expected in their lifetime. We are 2,000 years later, 2,000. It's a long, long time since the, the book of Acts was written. I mean, If you you were to talk to Peter and you were to talk to Paul and those people who were involved and who experienced all of that and show them the time that we live in today, they would look at the church around the world and they would say, what an opportunity you have to share the message of Jesus with people because you are so much closer than we were. You are so much nearer than we were. When will it happen? I have no idea. <laughs> and books have been written, and every single book that predicts it is always wrong. Always. Uh, I remember at the turn of the millennium. You know, you had all these people writing all these books. Then you had the end of the Mayan calendar. Your movies come out. Books come out. Then you had the four blood moons a couple of years ago. You had the thing. This one wrote a book. That one wrote a book. sold millions. Jesus didn't come back because nobody knows the time or the hour. Nobody. It's an imminent thing. It's something that we're to expect, but something that's going to take everybody by surprise. How is that possible? I have no idea, but that's what it says. And the moment that we can confidently say, oh yes, it's going to happen in such and such a time. We've got it all worked out. We've got it all calculated. That's when we're made fools of. Uh, Because God has it arranged in such a way. What an opportunity we have to, to share the message of Jesus with people who don't know. I mean, we talk about the second coming. Many people don't even know about the first coming. Many people don't even understand the reason why Jesus died Uh, in the first place. And what an opportunity for the church. I'd like to call the the band forward and they're going to begin to just play softly and we're going to share now in a time of communion together. I trust that you've received the the little emblems that we have here. Uh, If you haven't, can you just put your hand up in the air so that we can serve you Uh, We do it very, very simple in this church. It's just this little emblem of juice and a wafer all in one package, okay? I just want to make sure that everybody has one, and I want you to think about communion in the context of the soon return of Jesus, which we often don't think about, but which they thought about quite often uh, in the pages of the New Testament, okay? I want to read from you the famous passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 uh, that Paul wrote to the church there. And we've read this many, many times. But think about it in the light of the fact that Jesus will return one day, perhaps one day soon, perhaps even in our lifetime. We don't know. Perhaps even in our children's lifetime, we do not know. And he says to them this when reminding them of the gospel story. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you'll just peel back the very, very top layer of this emblem, you're going to see a simple, simple wafer there. And this is a picture, this is a symbol, a representation of of the physical body of Jesus that hung on that cross for you and for me to open the door of salvation for us, but also represents his church, the body of Christ, which is about the business of sharing the good news of Jesus, anticipating his return. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Paul continues in verse 25 there, and he says, "'In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, "'saying, "'This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. "'Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. "'For whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, "'you're anticipating something. "'You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.'" Until he comes, there's an anticipation there. And this juice, if you want to peel back the second layer, it's a little stronger. Uh, This juice, again, is a picture, a representation, a symbol of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us on that cross, opening the door to salvation. And this is the picture, and this is what we remember. Jesus came, Jesus died, but Jesus is coming again. Amen? Would you take the juice with me? Please stand and I'm going to pray and then let the band close us uh, in one more song. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, oh God, for this magnificent book of Acts that we have looked at. And God, I pray that that from the salvation story to the baptism in the holy spirit to the power of god displayed through miracles and even to the second coming of jesus the greatest sequel of all time lord that our lives would be would be impacted in a new way that we would have a a new sensitivity to you a new awareness of your presence with us and lord we would make the most of every opportunity to, to share our lives with others, to share the message of Jesus with others, and may we be strengthened, God. May our faith be strengthened where it was once weak. Lord, may we be bold and courageous uh, where we once lacked courage. Uh, and God, may you take us to new places and stretch us in new ways through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.